Hey there, everybody. Justin Bell here on Drive to Win, presented by the Win Las Vegas and brought to you by Mobile One for the love of driving. Well, it's been a pretty quiet week, actually, since the fanfare, the celebration, all that madness following the Italian Grand Prix at the famous Monza circuit. It was such a great weekend that there was like an energy carry-on. It was like the turbo spooled up on Formula One and kept it moving through into an off weekend. But when you say off weekend in Formula One, of course, that's a relative term because so much about Formula One is all that intense research and development, all the sim work, drivers, of course, having to stay incredibly fit, keep themselves not just motivated, that's not the tough part, but to keep their their physical fitness in top peak coming into the next race this weekend, which is in Singapore. Now, we'll talk about that track in a minute. We have two amazing guests. We have our first returning guest, which is Mario Andretti. Uh, yeah, he was on one of the early episodes of Drive to Win, and I just, I knew it was time to bring him back on. He said he'd have an update for us on what was happening with Andretti in Formula One by mid-July. Hmm? So it's about time to get the latest. And of course, he's always up to some pretty cool stuff. So I'm looking forward to having a chat with him. And then my other guest, because uh, why not get two on when you can, uh, is a great friend of mine, Lee Diffie, probably one of the top sports broadcasters in the business. And Lee's always got a lot to say. So very excited to have both of them on the show today. So as I said, Formula One staying in high gear because it really does. It's this time of the season, especially as we go into the second half, when there is so much to play for. And I said it before, and it's a well-used phrase to describe it, the silly season. And the silly season is upon us. Uh, most definitely, you, if you follow any of the social media, go to either Autosport or Formula1.com and check out what the gossip is. And you will see that the driver market is probably the hottest topic of the moment. Why is that? Well, obviously, when you have situations like when Sebastian Vettel retired pretty much uh without much prior warning, it's set in, it, in, into a cascade of events, really, that had this knock-on effect that really did affect nearly all the teams on the grid for the main part with some drivers moving around. And even the top teams aren't immune to that. I mean, silly rumors. I mean, is there always smoke without fire? But it, you can't blame the Formula One teams for trying. I mean, Lando Norris from McLaren has openly said that if he ever got the chance to drive alongside Max Verstappen, who he considers the greatest of our time, in equal equipment, then as a driver who wants to test himself against the best, he would be open to that. Probably not a lot of legs to that story for a couple of reasons. One is Lando is a McLaren lad through and through. They have been responsible for bringing his career up to the point it is now. All that hard work is starting to pay off, but he is a driver that is capable of being a world champion and in a career that it's so important to make your mark in those first five to eight, 10 years so you can achieve a world championship if that is on the cards for you. You don't want to leave it much after that. Otherwise, you're on the downside while other young drivers are coming up. Christian Horner was asked about the, the comment that he made and he said quite openly, you know, he respects Lando's credentials. He knows he's a hell of a driver, uh, but 
pretty severe contracts are in place. Although in Formula One, and you have to respect that, but in Formula One, we have seen that when there is a will, there's a way. If a Ferrari wants someone or a Red Bull with their outrageous capital funds, you could see movements like that. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that was right on the cards right now. But it does unsettle the home base. And sometimes as a driver, that's what you want to do because you want your own team to realize that you're not just uh, faithfully, blindly following them. Sometimes they, you want them to know that you might have a couple of other options. Ferrari, well, that's always a, a, a hot sort of conversation point because coming off the back of the Italian Grand Prix, such a great result. Carlos Sainz third, then um, Charles Leclerc in fourth. It really carried that swell of pride from the Tifosi and probably meant that getting a restaurant for those two or anyone wearing a red shirt in from the team in Italy was pretty easy last week. But on a serious side of it, you know, science is really coming to the fore. We know Leclerc is is one of the top guys as well. I wouldn't look for any movement there, especially as Leclerc is just locked in eight, well, is locking in his two-year deal. And But Carlos Sainz, you know, he has been with other teams and who knows where he'll end up. But he seems so perfect for Ferrari for the next couple of years that I'm sure we're not going to see anything moving there. And one of the other things that Ferrari is such a global brand that to have two drivers who work so well together who are so brilliant on social media and in marketing. I think it's the Tafosi's ideal dream team. So, you know, little gossip goes around, but I think we should focus more on the rest of the pack. But before we talk Singapore and invite our guests in, don't forget, you know, it really is coming up and it's only just a few weeks before the Las Vegas Concours. So much going on with that. If you go to the website, you can see Check out what the Concord is all about. We have the judge classes. We have American classics, British, European, American post-war sports and sports racing. They are all the judge classes, including the concept cars. And then we have the electric, electric and alternative fuel cars. So much going on. It's going to be quite wild. In fact, I'm out there co-hosting the event with my illustrious colleagues. And that'll all be on the golf course just behind us here at the Win Las Vegas. So go to lasvegasconcourt.com, check it out. And like I said last week, believe it or not, it is a very affordable way to come and see some of the world's best cars. Pretty good celebrity uh, spotting because I know that some big names coming into the VIP area and some of the world's top collectors and enthusiasts. So definitely the place in the automotive social lifestyle calendar will be here at the Win Las Vegas on November 11th. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Lee Diffie. He was a Channel 10 commentator over in Australia, and he got headhunted and moved over to join what was pretty much for any race fan, the best car channel in the world, which was Speed Channel. He came over here. It was such a huge success. His knowledge, infectious enthusiasm, and ability to just ask the right questions and embrace and describe a scene as though you were there has really made Lee one of the top guys. He not only went from speed, he went into NBC and he's covered everything from V8 supercars to IndyCar and of course, Formula One. But it's where when NBC asked him to go and do the Olympics for them that he really tested his skill set. He did everything from sailing to golf to curling. So let's bring Leon right now, one of my great mates and a guy who I've been dying to get on the show. Lee, so happy, finally, to get you on Drive to Win. 
I think this is um, lucky number three, isn't it, JB? It I think is. we've had a couple of attempts to get to make this happen. So finally, we got we got here. Where are you? That is a very impressive room. You look. It looks like. Well, you're not obviously a driver because those would all be pictures of yourself if you were a driver, <laughs> <laughs> right? No, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, it's not that impressive. I'm just in in my basement at home. I like it. I like it. Well, I know. The reason that we haven't got you on the show so far is because you are a busy man. This is the busy time of year with IndyCar and all the other stuff. I mean, this is a Formula One show, obviously not an IndyCar show, but you just came off the season finale at Laguna Seca, which was one of the wildest races you, you've had to commentate on for years. I know. Crazy. Um, crazy with eight cautions and lots of crashes and a lot of controversy. But I guess we could spin an F1 angle on it, Justin, with with Alex Pillow being crowned the champion. And uh, we thought that that Alex was headed down the Formula One road with McLaren. But uh, now we now know that's not to be. And CEO of McLaren Racing, Zach Brown, not too happy about that. So we'll see what the uh, what the courts say. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot more to that story, right? I think there's a lot of powerful people and there's a kid in the middle that wants to go racing and do the best he can. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure both sides are right, right. In their own way. Um, yeah. but I mean, he deserves it. on that note, a kid like that, how do you think you'd do if he, if he'd gone that direction? Well, let me answer that in two parts. Um, part of his rationale of making a U-turn on, on not going down that road with McLaren is at the moment he's 26. Um, you know, kind of the answer is on a postcard as to how long he would have to sit around or stand around in a garage uh, in the F1 world waiting for an opportunity, um, whether it be like Liam Lawson with Daniel Ricciardo or whatever the circumstance, you know, uh, Valtteri Bottas years ago, he had to, after, after he came out of what was then GP3, had to wait around in the garage for a year to get a shot at Williams. So he's saying, I'm 26. If I do a year or two or three or whatever of testing and reserve driver uh, role and waiting around, I'm knocking on the door of 30 and not too many people break into the world of F1 at 30. So I think he maybe had a case of reality, um, although it's a sticky situation contractually. So, But with that being said, he certainly held his own, not as if we can judge something off one session, but he certainly held his own and... and, and um, was impressive, I thought, at, at Circuit of the Americas when he did the free practice one session last year. So, but that's one session at one track. Um, like I said, you can't read too much into that. But I think he'd do well. I mean, he's a he's a global racer, very intelligent racer, as we've seen uh, in his short time in IndyCar to, to already wrap up two championships. Yeah, give the listener listeners a little context to this. Um, he was he had a contract with McLaren with Zach Brown and a contract with Ganassi, correct? Correct. But it goes back to last year where, if you remember, on the same day, both racing organizations put out a release or a social media post saying, looking forward to him driving for us uh, next year, meaning this year. Uh, and Alex uh, then jumped in the middle of it. Very similar to the Oscar Piastri story. Mm. You know, I'm driving here. No, I'm not. I'm going there uh, kind of thing. And then uh, there was uh, the situation was settled out of court and Alex Blow ended up staying with Chip Ganassi for this season, of which he has wrapped up his second championship. Um, and obviously we're not, we're not 
in the inner sanctum of, of those discussions, et cetera, but he was meant to be heading off to McLaren next year. Now, what does that mean, McLaren? Was it going to be in the seat of Felix Rosenquist in a third car at McLaren, Arrow McLaren here in the US for IndyCar and then doing F1 roles and maybe a few free practice ones, et cetera? Um, but anyway, um, what was seemingly at the 11th hour, he did a 180 and has and, and let uh, McLaren know that he wasn't going to go through with that. Um, Zach Brown says they had an agreement, they have a contract. Chip Ganassi says, well, we, he's staying with us. Um, so it's all going to play out over the coming weeks, months, and however long. So it's going to be an interesting, I don't want to call it a soap opera because it's not, it's more serious than that, yeah. but um, it's going to be an interesting story to follow. It's, well, do you know what you are today, Lee? I mean, it's not the first time you've been a warm-up for the for the big guy. Um, Mario's coming back on the show afterwards just because I want an update from him about what's going on with Andretti and Formula One and everything. And, but when yeah. I, I was just thinking last night, you know, you always have a little Google around, don't you? And I was thinking about he made a comment when he was approached by Ferrari to go, to stay in Formula One, and he's like, I can't do it. I make too much money in, in IndyCar. I, I, my future is there. I could have 20 years there as opposed. So he did make his way back to Ferrari, but these shenanigans have been going on for since, since man grabbed a steering wheel. Sure. I, Rick, Rick Mears was the same. Rick Mears had an opportunity to go to formula one and then, and then thought, well, that's somewhat speculative and I don't know but I could stay in the U S and have a really good living for a long time. And is still to this day, a Penske ambassador yeah. and mentor. Yeah. So yeah, you know, you live that world for a long time, mate, as yeah. a driver, do you go down this road or do you go down that road? It's, it's not always a clear path. Just so you know, Lee, I, because I, my dad told me and Mario told me and everyone told me they got their, their communication from El Comandatore, you know, from Enzo on a fax machine. I've had a fax machine plugged in for 35 years and there's never been a bloody fax from Ferrari. I'll tell you that. Can you imagine what that would feel like? All right. You had so much fun when you were doing the Formula One broadcast with your yes. Dos Amigos, right? You know, I mean, you, Steve Matchett and Hobbs, it was just so fun. In a way, I was thinking about it this morning. It was a moment in time where your personalities were able to mesh and, and it was almost that that wonderful moment before Formula One got ultra intense here in the States. I do you, have you ever thought about that? You you guys were able to kind of wax lyrical. It was just for the US. You weren't doing a global broadcast. You were having a really good time, and that was infectious. Do you think that was just a moment in time that was able to happen? It was a very special moment in time, and you said something more impactful than maybe you realize in that we were talking to the U.S. audience and that, um, you know, you're a fan, I'm a fan, but we also work in the business as well. Sadly, you know, since we've said farewell at the end of 2017, that's what's been lacking. There's nobody left. There's nobody talking specifically to the U.S. audience. Um, You know, the World Feed coverage is expansive. Um, They do a phenomenal job. Um, it's primarily a broadcast for the British audience, but then gets, you know, paralleled as a, as a, as a de facto world feed. Um, now I'm talking about the sky coverage. Mm. And, and then, of course, you could go on to, you know, you could pay for the F1 app, uh, et cetera, if you like. Um, but it was, there were five fantastic years. And preceding that, 
there were so many great years on Speed Channel as well. But for those for that for that sliver of time, those five years of F1 on NBC with myself, David Hobbs, Steve Matchett, Will Buxton, um, lots of shoulder programming and support programming, us being on the ground uh, for preseason testing at Barcelona, doing the Monaco Grand Prix, doing the Canadian Grand Prix and the US Grand Prix. They were really they were fun days, special times for sure. How do you think from a, as a professional? How have you? I'm going to ask you once as a professional, once as a fan. Mm-hmm. How has Formula One evolved? And I'm maybe I'm a little rhetorical here. It has evolved. How has it evolved since you two, you three guys were doing it, and for the better or worse? What's your thought? I, I would. I'm not sure. I'd even say the word evolved. I would say a dramatic change. Mm. Um, uh, in that. I think once upon a time it was a sporting event where it was hardcore F1 fans and then and then some around the fringes were able to be attracted to it and you know over over the last handful of years um and witnessing it you know here in the US um in Miami and at Circuit of the Americas my take on it is it has become like a cultural event you know like a yeah. I was at I must be seen at um, you know, there's just millions and millions of new fans and new followers that don't have a deep or rich history in the sport, but they don't have to, you know, yeah. it's, uh, as broadcasters and as broadcast companies that we work for, you know, it's that endless goal of getting new eyeballs on the screen. Well, they've successfully done that and across generations, all age groups, um, it's been a successful breakthrough. But yeah, I that's that's my observation. It's 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 been more more than a slow kind of gradual evolution. It's been this dramatic, you know, bang, and um and and how it's changed uh, dramatically, you know, from um just yeah, I, I would say not purist, but just just from maybe hardcore fans, really really been watching it for a long time, been to this Grand Prix, been to that Grand Prix, etc. To now it's. You know, you see a lot of younger people there, um, you know, a lot of A-listers. You know, maybe we would see, you know, the most A-list stars at, at the Monaco Grand Prix or whatever, but now they're everywhere. It's a, you know, I have to be seen on an F1 yeah. grid and I have to be at an F1 Grand Prix. Yeah, you had to really work to be an F1 fan back in the day. And I think that's the challenge facing Liberty, actually, and Liberty Media, you know, who who own Formula One, uh, they – this fan base has to, it can be a mile wide, but it can't be a millimeter deep, right? It has to grow some depth if it's going to be yes. sustainable. And they said yeah. something quite interesting. I think it was in the news yesterday that they're str- right now, they're going to, there's a little bit of pushback in the fact that Formula One is being sold to America as entertainment, but it's actually a sport. And part of a sport yes. is you have a runaway figure sometimes, whether it's, a top football team or baseball team or whoever it is, it's the Yankees, whatever. It's it's Tiger Woods, it's Tom Brady. And here in Formula One, we're having the Max Verstappen era, and that's not that fun after a few races. So people are going, yep. well, can't someone else win? It's a little more complicated yep. than that. I'll tell you, I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell you, I, uh, I live in Connecticut. Uh, NBC Sports is based in Connecticut, in Southern Connecticut. Uh, my local UPS store where I collect my mail, uh, there's three guys who run the store. One of them's Chip, great guy, ex-Marine. And uh, 
you know, for all of the years that we were doing Formula One, he's he's a dirt bike guy, but all the years we were doing Formula One, never had a discussion with Chip about F1, not even once. No. And about, I don't know, two years ago, I went in to collect my mail and he's like, hey, when are you, uh, you going to start doing Formula One again? I was like, you, what, you're interested in Formula One? I'm a huge fan. I said, what do you think about the Grand Prix at the weekend? What Grand Prix? I said, the Grand Prix at the weekend. Oh, I don't watch the races. I, I drive to survive. Ah, that's it, right? That's the case in point. There you are. Wow. Case in point. Wow. Wow. Well, well, I mean, certainly this is a this has got momentum for the people behind Formula One, the the investment in it, you know, investment here in Vegas is absolutely oh, yeah. off the charts. We'll talk about that in a minute. But okay, so that's ex Formula One commentator mindset and someone that knows the business. How do you rate this year's Formula One season as a fan of the sport? Um, well, I, uh, yeah, I, I think of that as a fan. You and could I start think of off as... a little bit more enthusiastic. That was... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm excited. I'm excited. We uh, There's a group of us who have a, uh, a tipping contest as ah. to, you know, we've got to pick the top 10 in correct order, et cetera. So no, no, no. My passion is still very high. We're, we're, we're engaged a lot. Um, but I think of it as a fan, and then I think of it how I'd call it if we if we were still mm. if we were still calling it with the domination of Verstappen. I think there's there's two parts to that as well. You have to celebrate what Red Bull's achieved. You know, if you think in the first iteration of of the hybrid era of Formula One, Mercedes got the jump start, the head start, and 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 it dominated. Well, now in the second iteration of the hybrid era with the new regulations, it's Red Bull that's got the the head start and the jump start on them. So. They're taking off, and and as you know, mate, or if your dad was with us on this on this call, your dad would say the same thing. As we know, the cycle of Formula One, the fortunes, you know, whoever it is, when Williams had their time, and McLaren had their time, Ferrari have their time, Red Bull, Mercedes, whatever, it all goes around. So, but I, you know, what gets me excited? It's not the fact of 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 Verstappen winning. Uh, and Red Bull dominating the way that they are, I look deeper. I love the other stories. I love what, what you might describe as the sub-stories. Yeah. You know, who, who's actually going to score a point? Who, who might be battling over sixth? I think the, the fascinating thing, and I am um, unashamedly, totally openly a Fernando Alonso fan. I think the guy's brilliant. I think he's a political animal, but um, I think he's brilliant behind the wheel, and I just I love what he's doing at this stage in life. Um, the, the Lewis story. You know, Lewis between George and just all those little, you know, what is Alpine doing with all of their upheaval? What, you know, what can they achieve? The um, the, the resurgence of Williams. I, I, I'm, I knock on wood every time and cross my fingers for young Logan Sargent, the only American in Formula One at the moment, because I, I, I think so highly of Logan. I've known him since he was a teenager. Great kid. And I want him to achieve. Obviously, his teammates got a lot, lot more experience. So I get excited to see what Williams is doing. And so for me, it's all those other sub stories that 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 get me excited, JB, about this season rather than the, you know, I'm not resigned to the fact that Verstappen's going to run away, but that's pretty much the case. Yep, yeah. Uh, you just summed it up so well, and you're right. It was actually Damon Hill was on a few weeks ago, and he said I've changed. He changed his mindset to say, let's celebrate this run to the end. It let's watch a record be set. Let's say we were there. Let's say we were a part of it. Because it won't last forever. And we'll be having That's right. a conversation about someone else. Uh, you're a guy that you see so many sports. You talk about so many sports. I, I've been dying to ask you this. We see athletes in every form of 
extreme sports, especially whether it's luge through to, you know, through to motocross, through to MotoGP, it seems to me like the limits are being pushed. They're almost defying the le- the the laws of physics. They're doing more extreme, whether it's stunts or the f- ultimate level of performance is getting greater than we've ever seen. What is responsible for that? Well, I mean, if you if you put yourself back in your racing days, it's always to to lower that lap time, go faster, win more. It's it's in our it's in our DNA, right? We always mm. want to try and push push the parameters and and do more. As you know, away from the motorsport world, um, I do a bunch of other things, including track and field at the Olympics. I just came back from the World Championships in Hungary in Budapest in Hungary, and and again, just some of the records that were set there. What, what the athletes can achieve, you know, with their own bodies is just remarkable. And I think it's just the, it's just the pursuit, JB, of, of trying to be better, do better, um, see how far we can go. That's human nature. I also think, uh, I agree, I also think that social media has got something to do with it because sure. you have the ability to see what everyone else in the world is doing. Uh, you know, it's a bit like you in the gym, Lee. You have a, you see all these bodybuilders, and you know you, what you've got to do to look the way you do, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. He has a fitness video, everybody. It's thirty second abs. Um, <laughs> no, it's. Uh, it, I think it's because you go, oh my god, that guy's just done a triple backflip on his motocross bike. I've got to be doing yeah. that. I think it's definitely. Yeah. And in driving racing terms, if I was a driver, because you know, fitness as a driver used to be, it's always been important, but. That was in between the fags and the birds, right? Now it's you know it's a part of it. But if you're if you're taking a little easier that week between Italy and Singapore, and you see that uh, you know Carlos Sainz has just gone and run a triathlon, it really must kick you in the ass. And I think that's what yeah. I think it's all part of contributing to the the rise in the the quality level. Yeah, because if you weren't around, if you weren't part of the 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 friendship group or the the inner circle of a certain athlete rider, driver, whatever it might be, you don't know what they're up to, right? No, so exactly. now they they almost use they use it as a promotional tool. They use it as a little bit of a sports psychology and a little bit of a psychological warfare tool against their opponents to say, I'm doing this, I'm running further, faster, doing more, training harder. Um, you know, we all went on the ride years ago with Lewis when he was traveling the world on his private jet before he got yeah. rid of it. You know, and we 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 lived vicariously through Hamilton's world. So yeah, it's uh, um, I think it can be used as a as a bit of a wicked tool sometimes, but then there's a lot of positivity to it as well. Perfect. Well, it is now time for the Mobile One pit stop for the love of driving. Lee, I'm going to ask you some little questions, relatively short answers, please, but they're right up your street. Most impressive thing that you've ever seen a driver do behind the wheel of a Formula One car. Maybe Max Verstappen at the age of 18 holding off Kimi Raikkonen for the last 20 laps of the Spanish Grand Prix. It's a good one. You've met a lot of your heroes. Who's left? Hmm. That's a good one. I don't know. I met Laird Hamilton at the Ooh. weekend, the big wave surfer, the surfing legend. That was that was that was pretty cool. Um you've stumped me, JB. I don't know. Off well, the top of my head. Well, Laird's a good one. Uh, you go with him. Um, this is a dubious question. What sport could you have been pro at? None, because I don't have 
the killer instinct to the degree that it takes to excel. Honest, but true. Which IndyCar driver really could have make, make waves in Formula One at this current moment? Scott Dixon. He's, a, he's it, isn't he? He's the GOAT. Genius. Yes. Yep. Worst answer you ever got to an interview question? <laughs> it's usually a one word answer. <laughs> As you know, it's usually like, uh, actually, yeah, I'll give it to you. The late, and he's a friend of yours, friend of mine. Uh, sadly, he's no longer with us. The, the, the late, great Vic Elford. We were at the Pinehurst Concord Elegance, and I'd spent a whole evening with him the night before at the chairman's function, and he was fantastic. And the next day, we were out on the lawn with all the cars, and I asked him something, and I said, you know, Lamar played a uh, such a pivotal role in your life, you know, for the good or the bad. Um, can we talk about Lamar in the 1970s? And he said, no. <laughs> next next question. That's, that's very funny. I've had it worse. Well, we all know worse answers than that. And the last one. Yeah. The most dangerous race driver you've ever known to go out for a good night out with? He may have just asked me that question. Ah, well, that's fair. Okay, I'm <laughs> blushing now. That's funny. We have had our moments. Uh, well, Lee, Lee you, you are the best. Let's quickly talk before I let you go uh, and get the, the big man on. Um, Las Vegas Grand Prix. Unbelievable. We now have three races here in the United States of America. Who would have thought it? What are you? What are your thoughts looking forward to the Grand Prix? I think it's extraordinary. I think no matter what we say and get caught in, caught up in the minutia of the sport or the surrounds, is that Justin? This is what we've always been wanting. This is what we've always been wishing for and striving for: is to bring Formula One to the to the forefront and the attention of the greater public here in the United States for so long. You know that that complaint or almost that goal, I mean, the goal can always be there because you can always have more, but, you know, striving to, to bring it to the attention of the masses, that, that's been achieved already. And to go from, you know, wanting to look for a home of US Grand Prix prior to Circuit of the Americas, now we've gone into the second decade at Circuit of the Americas to add Miami and then now Las Vegas. I mean, this is, this is fairyland stuff. This is, this is unreal for the sport of Formula One in North America. I'll be here with jingle bells on, as they say. Lee, so good. Let's catch up. Um, hopefully, we'll see you before the end of the season somewhere. And uh, as always, mate, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, JB. All right. Take care, buddy. Hey, race fans. If you're anything like me, driving probably means quite a lot to you. And not just racing, all sorts of driving. Nowadays, I'm sure you feel like I do sometimes. I'm just too distracted with texts, emails, work calls, and social media, of course, to get out there and simply enjoy the open road. Now, I've always had a love for driving, and that is what Mobile One is all about. A reminder that even when life starts to feel too full of screens and routines, the ultimate escape is waiting patiently in your driveway. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Well, when talking about the lights of Las Vegas, of course, and racing under the lights, November the 18th, we will be doing just that right here on the streets outside the Win Las Vegas on the famous Las Vegas Strip. It's the Heineken Silver Grand Prix of Las Vegas. And the win 
in Las Vegas is pretty much the epicenter of it all. The track is taking shape. The repaving is pretty much done. That was like $80 million of new asphalt laid down. As I flew in this morning, I could see the whole paddock area nearing completion. They're putting up the grandstands across from the pit, pit boxes right now. So much work, enormous investment. Uh, I look at it and I get nervous when I do an addition to my house. Uh, how are they getting all this work done in time? Certainly Las Vegas is on standby. There is, there's roadworks everywhere you look, but it's all for the greater cause if you're a racing fan. And that is all happening here November 18th. Head to winlasvegas.com slash experiences slash F1 and you can see all the ways you can be here. There is pretty much a package to suit most people's budget. Uh, it starts with the paddock club, goes all the way to their million dollar package for some very lucky people. Uh, there, it is going to be a an amazing weekend. And right here in the win, as I said, it is gearing up quite incredibly with Formula One cars everywhere you look. Well, a guy who really doesn't need much of an introduction, Mario Andretti, he is the Italian-born racer that captured the hearts and minds of the Formula One and sports car, IndyCar fan base. He's one of only three drivers who's ever won races in Formula One, IndyCar and sports cars and NASCAR. He was the 1978 Formula One world champion and actually the only driver to ever, who's ever won the Formula One championship, Indy 500 and Daytona 500, plus four IndyCar championships. And a little note, his last win in 1978 at the Dutch Grand Prix was the last win by an American in Formula One. I'm so excited and honored. Once again, he took time out of his schedule to join us. Mario, so nice to see you, my friend. It's my pleasure, Justin. Anytime. Well, I know we're now in, you know, the, well, the IndyCar series just finished. Uh, we're in the, well into the second half of the Formula One season. A lot has happened since we last taught. Uh, it's been Obviously, we had Max Verstappen doing his thing, but lots of other stuff happening in, in the race season. But I was wondering if, if you had any more news to share on what's happening with Andretti, the Andretti name back in Formula One. Well, right now, I don't have any comment on that, quite honestly. Okay. Um, and um, uh, the situation, you know, I it's okay, you know, it's delicate. So uh, I have nothing to say at the moment. Well, that is fine. I just thought we should hear it from you because obviously I know that this was the time of year that there was a lot of news going to be flying around. But I thought of you for a couple of reasons over the last two races. One, watching the Dutch Grand Prix. And of course, that was the last Grand Prix ever won by an American driver. It was you there in 1978. And then watching Italy and just knowing your story growing up going back there to race uh, as a Formula One driver. And I was looking at those two races and I was wondering if you shared any of the same sentiment for yourself personally when you watched those races. Such amazing moments in your life, but such great racing still today. Well, all of it. Uh, you can imagine that, uh, yeah, I'm on it on something like that. And, uh, you know, you always... Uh, I, I don't miss out on, uh, uh, you know, looking back to some of the, you know, the positive moments that I had, different places, like you say, uh, you know, my basically my last experience in Europe was uh, at Monza, as you know, with Ferrari, but, um, you know, just, uh, you know, winning my last race at, uh, you know, in Zandvoort, uh, obviously it puts a little more of a premium as far as watching the race again, and because again, 
that brings back those memories. So uh, and good stuff, you know. I just uh, stay on the positive side on everything, and uh, have plenty of positive things going on at that point uh, in the past. I was, and you're in that unique position to know. I mean, it was a little different for Max Verstappen when he does his his cool down lap, looking at you know two hundred thousand people from the yeah. Netherlands in orange, um, but. Do you remember your feeling of, we always talk about what it's like to cross the finish line. What, what's, what was it like? Do you remember the, the cool down lap for you coming back into the pits, having won that race? Well, it, it's always, again, it's euphoria in so many ways because, uh, you know, those moments, uh, you don't experience uh, <laughs> enough of them. Yeah. But uh, when they're there, it's, um, you know, it's just a, a feeling that's hard to describe, quite honestly. Um, th those are the moments that you live for, that you do, you work for, and uh, and it stays with you forever, you know. So yeah, yeah. Um, I remember you just said different races; they're important. Uh, uh, winning any for the Granatellis uh, and winning Mo in Monza, and then winning the World Championship there. Even though the year where you know clinched the World Championship there, obviously it was a sad situation yeah. because of Ronnie, no question. But um, the year before, I won there, and I, I won the second time. But I, I got, <laughs> I got penalized because uh, I got penalized because Jill jumped to start. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I, I reacted, but I stopped, and uh, and Jill jumped the, the restart there, and uh, so they were not going to penalize only Ferrari. So they penalized us, and I thought I, I drove one of the best races. Uh, in Formula One, because uh, I had no brakes, you know, which uh, that was always an issue with the 79. Um, and uh, because the rear brakes were cooking and I always had to just uh, pump the pump the brakes, you know, to, to make it over, do an overtake. And, uh, and I just, uh, at, at the Monza, for instance, you know, I, I took over, I, I, I passed Jill in, in the Ascari. Uh, she came on the last, you know, last lap. And uh, that was a do or die, and uh, so we did. <laughs> it didn't die, but uh, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, they say, "Oh, you're penalized a minute because jump to start." So uh, I thought, you know, I had a good, good uh, reason to protest that, but uh, because of Ronnie's situation, you know, we didn't delve into it uh, because I did not jump to start. Jill Villeneuve did. That's and I bet that moment, you know, when you're you're so exposed, your visibility was so so much better than it is for these drivers today. And even you know, the, anyone that has never driven an open wheel car can't can't understand the the proximity and the relationship from those front tires to you. But in the 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 uh, regulations of the Formula One cars at the end of the seventies, there you were right on top of those wheels. You could see anyone jumping even by half an inch, couldn't you? Yeah, no question. Yeah, the visibility was pretty clear. Yes, uh, and the, the protection was not there either. No. You know, but you can have both. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it, um, you know, you were really exposed. There's no question about it, which, uh, again, from the standpoint of expressing yourself and so on and so forth, <laughs> They could see you for they sure. Could, they could see you. There were there were lots of lots of uh, communication, which uh, today probably wouldn't be allowed. Indeed, your I mean, you were you were in your own way. You were your the Max Verstappen of the time. Um, but 
And I asked you this when we did except our... Except for the reliability of the car. Except for the reliability of your car, exactly. <laughs> if you had the RB19, I think you could have had a different a different thing. But, I mean, let's talk about that. You've got... The driver cannot do it alone. The team have to provide him the car. And sometimes the perfect horse and chariot meet up. Uh, what's your personal analysis of, of the Verstappen just brilliant dominance right now? Well, there's uh, this brilliance there for sure. And uh, he has control of the situation. He has full confidence. Uh, he has obviously uh, the uh, the equipment behind him, no yeah. question about it, but he knows what to do with it yeah, also. Yeah, yeah. And um, you can see that uh, he, uh, he feels, uh, you know, that he's in command, no question about it too. Uh, so, and the cars today are, you know, reliable. So, you know, that unless you make a mistake, uh, your chance of finishing the race is like 98.8%. And that's a great feeling for a driver too. You know, it's something that uh, I never experienced, you know, throughout my career because uh, the rules were different, you know, and I think the way the rules are now is fantastic because it does protect that side of it. And if you're uh, a driver that charges 100% all the time, uh, you'll be, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you know, you, you, you'll show it to the end, you know, you'll yeah. be rewarded, if you will. I mean, I was often, you know, when you, you think about, oh, well, actually, I think about it when, whether it's Michael talking to the drivers, you talking to the young drivers, you even when you're talking to, to, you know, your family members as they got into it, it's like dad talking to me about, you know, manage the gearbox and be gentle with the clutch and, you know, feel the brakes and don't over rev it. That is not even a factor in today's young driver's minds. Think about the amount of brain power that it took or, or attention to your driving style for you not to screw that up, right? On any given lap in Formula One in your day, well, they don't have to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the fact of uh, missing a shift uh, or over revving on a downshift. Today, if, uh, if you downshift too early, uh, you know, because of, uh, you know, the, the, the way it's programmed, uh, it will not accept the shift, you know. So you cannot over rev the engine. So uh, we used to have to consider, you know, be a lot more disciplined in that respect. And uh, it is what it is. You know, that's what we had and that's what they have now. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, they were you know, you, you you didn't get away with too many uh, full paws, if you no. will. You know, in those days, uh, you you paid dearly for it, uh, and because of that, you had a lot of that on your mind too. Here now, today, pop, 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 pop. You yeah. know, you just don't. <laughs> yeah, just so different. And of course, you tried it, experienced it oh, just a few months ago. Here's a fun one. Uh, someone asked me to. I do actually have some questions from some fans. If you don't mind, in a, a no, couple of minutes. But here's one from uh, me as a fan, and my dad and I were talking about it yesterday because uh, he's just been at the Goodwood Revival and with everybody and, you know, having oh, having such an amazing time. But we were talking about uh, life on the road as a Formula One driver when you were with James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. And these these were the – we had no social media, but they were arguably uh, – James Hunt was as popular as any driver will ever be in history – just how was that being with these guys that, you know, were hard behind the wheel, but hard off track too? 
that sounded bad. Hard partying off track too. <laughs> you know what? That's one thing I agree. We had more fun than the drivers have today, quite honestly. I think we did. Um, there was uh, potentially, I think there was a lot more camaraderie, even though on the, on the track itself, we tried to kill it, uh, kill each other. But uh, um, on the social side, uh, you know, I, you know, I certainly, and I used to enjoy uh, Clay Regazzoni, enjoy Nicky Lauda, I enjoyed, uh, you know, Elliot DeAngelis, enjoyed all my teammates, Ronnie. Uh, you know, we used to spend time together. Uh, I mean, uh, actually, you know, uh, precious times together. And uh, so that part, I think, uh, is something that uh, I, I thought, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we, we enjoyed it, our life more in that respect, I think. And no, one knew, and no one knew what you were doing. That is the truth of it, right? <laughs> no that's, one. That, that's important. That is important. You know what I said to dad? I said, all of you guys have, you should all collaborate and write a, write your own, the, the, the second and third editions of your books only to be released when everybody concerned is dead, right? Because that's the only way these stories can live. Uh, now you're starting to get me in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's my job. Um, I do want to say something. Motor racing, as you know, is a bit of a weird sport because we we hide away when it comes to what people get paid, it isn't as as obvious as it is in other sports, in football and baseball with the transfer fees. And, you, you know, it's very well published what a basketball player makes. We only get estimates of what Formula One drivers get paid today. But by for reference, um, I mean, Jackie Stewart told me, uh, you know, what he was getting paid one time uh, when I interviewed him for Life with Legends. Just try and relate what it was like to earn money in Formula One compared even to IndyCar back when you were doing it? Well, quite honestly, you know, what's interesting is that uh, just that fact that potentially kept me away from uh, entering Formula One full time uh, into uh, into the 70s, early 70s. Uh, I just technically could not afford it. I mean, uh, uh, the price money factor and also the contracts uh, with tire companies and so forth there, you could not actually disregard that. And it was uh, uh, from a security standpoint for your family and so on and so forth. And uh, I remember even at one point when uh, when uh, Jackie was coming to Indy, we were testing and it was a rainy day and, and uh, we were in a car and he said, Mario, how do we just raise the boat here? How do we? And and I said the best thing to do, I said, is is um, to uh, to talk to each other. I said because it's only there's no set fee for anyone. I said it's just uh, if I know that uh, you're receiving twice or three times uh, that they have the contract that I have, I know I have a. Uh, an opportunity to reach the level. And, and so I said, we have to help each other. And I think that's what we started to do, even with, uh, uh, yeah, you, you know, with Nicky Lauda, for instance, he, he was very clever. He was quite a businessman and so forth. And uh, I said, we have to raise the boat ourselves, just like the safety aspect and everything. I said, it's in our hands. And um, at that time, you know, it was basically at its infancy, and then little bell. Once it starts taking off, and actually the uh, the tobacco money started coming in pretty strong in Formula One. Then some opportunities came up, and um, then all of a sudden, you know, that uh, became very attractive. 
but uh, again, you know, one thing I drove really hard, as hard as I could. But I'll tell you what, uh, I wanted to be compensated as well. And uh, and and again, that was a lot of it because you know you think uh, you don't dwell on this, but at the same time. Uh, you see that you lose some friends and figure, oh, I wonder what's happening with the family and so forth. And uh, I know there was always, it had to be in the mind of my wife. And uh, we had a, you know, a young family, uh, you know, ourselves. And uh, and I'm, I was always thinking of that. That's my responsibility. I know I'm selfish doing all this and everything else, but I have to be thinking that respect. And, uh, and that actually, um, the, you know, the determined, uh, you, you know my path, uh, and but uh, when I got into Formula One, finally uh, everything started clicking. You know in that respect too. So I wasn't giving up anything. I was doing really well, uh, and um, and I, I could you know share some stories with you like, when we write the book. Actually, the which way. would be interesting. <laughs> just how <laughs> just how I, I I raised that level. You know at one point just because uh, the opportunity what was offered to me by. Uh, Mr. Ferrari at the end of 77, uh, you know, and, uh, and why I stay with Colin for 78 is it's an interesting story. Well, but, uh, we'll do it on the next be, time. We'll be, yeah, we'll have to be there next. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Great insight. They certainly don't have a problem making money now, do they? Um, they shouldn't. It's and they good. shouldn't. Absolutely. Yeah. You look across all, you know, all the professional sports and everything. And we've been lagging behind, but now I think we're beginning to catch up, which is, uh, it's it's right. I mean, I remember in the 70s and so forth, uh, I remember telling uh, one of my uh, chief mechanics who was uh, actually uh, Australian, and uh, he said, oh, I have a young family. He says, well, sure. I said, you know what? Uh, put a set of golf clubs in his hands, in your your son's hands, and I said, <laughs> and that's where you're going to make the money. And by comparison, that's what it was. What it was, yeah. My dad tried that. It wasn't very successful. It wasn't. Look, look. I ended up. Look at your family. We all, we all, we all drank the same. The DNA was there. We drank the Kool Aid. Um, some questions. Uh, well, Mem Hanfeld, who we also know as Mary Elizabeth Meekham, um, said, "How do you still feel about?" your 1981 Indy 500 being taken away from you? Well, you know, I look back and uh, <clears throat> I think uh, it, it was a travesty in so many ways, to be honest with you. And uh, I blame USAC as a sanctioning body for uh, uh, allowing, um, you know, I don't blame, first of all, I, I, I want to preface this. I, I don't blame Bobby Answer. I always thought, oh, you know, that, that, that there's, our friendship suffered because of that, or Roger Penske for trying. But everything that they tried, USAC just succumbed to it. And as a sanctioning body, they just uh, did not, you know, uh, did not follow the rule book. And I'll give you a for, quick for instance for this. Um, you know that uh, uh, the decision at the end was made by three, two outside uh, individuals. Uh, they were brought on as uh, the judges, and um, and Charlie Brockman was a radio personality at Indianapolis. So it was two to one. They said that under the circumstances, the penalty of one lap, uh, take, you know, the penalizer of one lap is too severe. So they penalized him $40,000 and gave him the race back. So it gets better. 
the following year during the driver's meeting, uh, Tom Benford was obviously the race director. And uh, so, you know, we go through everything prior to, 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 to the event. So I, I raised my hand right at the end. I said, Tom, I said, uh, any rule changes uh, for next year? He says, nope, nope. Oh, I said, so if, um, if I cross, if I pass 11 cars under the yellow and cross the finish line first, is the penalty still $40,000, but I keep the race. Oh, no, 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 no. I said, well, I said, so the rule book will apply this year, right? He said, Mario, he said, I penalized him, which he did. He said, but, uh, you know, I was over overruled. And uh, that's what it was. That was the part that actually I found hard to accept. And uh, I blame USAC as a sanctioning body for allowing that to happen. And, uh, and so, and it was as clear as daylight. Rules are rules, you know, Because man. there were examples, examples just before, you know, a couple of years, year before consecutive years where uh, for finishing second, um, you know, there were, there were two situations where even less of a penalty and they could have been the best finisher of their careers. Yep. And, uh, and they were penalized a lap, so they finished sixth or seventh or whatever, but, but they didn't win, you know, they would have, they would have been second in the race. Uh, but they penalized, and there was no question about it. But um, anyway, it's uh, clear. I can tell uh, it is still clear in your mind, as though oh, you were clear. clear in your mind. It's clear. Well, the next question you is: know what? Hey, this, 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 the eighty-one ring, by the way. There's the eighty-one ring, exactly. I saw this that when I was in your house. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, that's the one you were wearing in that portrait I took of you. Okay, next question by TJR for life. Why do you take time to comment on Christmas trees each year? This is obviously a fan. I don't know. I, I have no idea why I got into that one. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I don't know. It's just one of those things that you do and then you can't get out of it. That's it. You're stuck. <laughs> um, Carl, I, I, have no, I have no real answer for that. <laughs> let's just let it ride. Uh, sometimes people think I don't have a life. <laughs> yeah. Carl Crazy 729 said, what was your favorite racing series on reflection? You know, uh, in a sense, my ultimate dream was Formula One. Why? Because that's it's Formula One that actually got me attracted to the sport when I was still a young teenager in Italy. And, um, you know, the, you know, you, you know that uh, Italy was so prominent in, especially in the fifties, uh, when Formula One officially started with the current world champions there, Alberto Scotti, you know, who was, you know, the man for me. And, and you had Fon, Fonjo Moss and all those heroes that, uh, uh, you know, there was something about some real magic about them. And Aldo and I, my, my twin brother Aldo and I just uh, gravitated to that. And, and after seeing, after witnessing the, the 1954 Italian Grand Prix, the mold was cast. You know, there was no more plan B. I had no idea, I you know, that. how anything could happen. But can you imagine just this weekend, Justin, uh, there was a helmet swap between uh, uh, the Juan um, uh, Fangio Museum in Argentina, you know, of uh, our own helmets. And uh, I got one of Fangio's... It, replica, replica helmet. Can you imagine me 
as a teenager in 1954, 14 years old in Monza, yeah. watching Fonjo win that race and me just, oh my goodness, that's another, that's a God. And then now, you know, at this stage of my life, you know, having his helmet and mine going to his museum, you know, that, this, uh, those are the wonderful things that happen in life sometimes. And uh, so you can imagine my emotion. I saw uh, the photograph. Weekend. I saw the photograph and I was going to bring it up. You look so happy. And just like I was thinking, <laughs> I've seen your house. I know I was thinking, where will he put the helmet? Is it, it could even go on your desk, but will it go on the wall? I was thinking, where will it end up? It will be prominent. It, it will, will be prominent. Be prominent. Uh, well, the last question um, from R.Q. Kerry, a great question. What was it like to race against the Rodriguez brothers, especially Pedro? Well, Pedro, I didn't. I never raced against Ricardo, oh. but Pedro, great, great guy. I mean, uh, uh, really cool, uh, solid. Um, you know, the, as fate would have it, my first long distance race, uh, which was a 24 hours of Daytona, with the NART North American Racing, uh, the Luigi Canetti Ferrari, yeah. with Pedro. We finished fourth of that, you know, in the race, you know, was the car was a bit old, but, you know, but nevertheless, just to be with him. And I remember just setting up the car. He, uh, I was, I had a little more affinity, even though I was new at that, uh, but the car, because I had run Daytona, you know, and all that. And, um, and he, um, he said, oh, you, you, you fix it. You do, you do. And it was just so awesome. You know, then we did Sebring and Fano, you know, race, but, uh, and then, of course, in Formula One, and uh, and and you know, Pedro, without knowing, saved my life in Austria in 1970, where uh, at the start of the race, my throttle stuck. Uh, you know, after the, for the you know the the turn at the end of the straightaway, the the next yeah. left, you know, under brake, yeah, and I yeah. was right behind Pedro, and uh, and my throttle stuck, and I went over his wheels and I went over the guardrail, which was double tier guardrail. I would have done a head on, you know, I would have been all over. And I went over there and I went upside down into the marsh. <laughs> you know? So, uh, but nevertheless, you know, going back to uh, the, the Rodriguez brothers, uh, they were something special for sure. And, and I feel that, um, you know, the opportunity to have uh, gotten to know Pedro really well. Uh, you know, it was actually, uh, yeah, something, a big bonus for me. Uh, you know, the thing is with talking to you, Mario, is we could, it, it just always deserves hours and hours and hours. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's, it's so special. Uh, obviously fingers crossed on everything happening in formula one. Didn't mean to put you on the spot, but obviously a lot of people are, uh, wish it would happen. We've got eight more races of this crazy series to go. And I, I know you watch them all. I watch them all and I'll be there. Quite a few of them, actually. Perfect. Thank you, Mario. Take care, my friend, and we'll see you soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Right. Cheers. Bye, man. Bye. You know, sometimes I do have to pinch myself doing this because having Mario Andretti, who I have on my phone, as though he's one of my mates, is still a little bit unbelievable. And Lee, well, he is the best. And boy, have we had some good times together. But, you know, when you get down to business, there's only eight rounds remaining of the Formula One World Championship. And, of course, seven until we're here in Las Vegas. Singapore this weekend, it's almost sold out, is what they're saying on the website, which is a pretty impressive thing. And it's pretty good 
forerunner to what we're going to see or a, a sort of precursor to what we're going to see here in Las Vegas because it is a race run under the lights, just like we're going to here. In Singapore, of course, they have incredible heat and humidity at that, this time of year. So they do it for that reason. And it makes this absolutely ex extraordinary spectacle. I remember the first time they broadcast that race live just a few years ago. And I think every race fan was just mesmerized seeing what the promoters were able to do and what Formula One were able to do in literally bringing Formula One alive in these incredibly high def, almost oversaturated images. And it must, I can't wait to talk to one of the drivers about what it is like to actually drive under the lights. Probably have to wait till Vegas week for me to get that. It's a long race. Uh, almost two hours just because of the way the laps are put together. It is a very demanding lap and very physical. And I said it at the beginning of the show, the drivers are really working very hard on fitness, especially leading up to it because driver cockpit temperatures and conditions. And it's a very violent thing driving a Formula One car, driving any race car. And while their hands may look so smooth and controlled, and it's almost like they're on a sim, like the same one you and I can do at home, when your body is undergoing such extreme G-force, it's only your physical conditioning that's able to hold you in the seat and allow your brain to interpret what you need to do, all that analysis, all that uh, sort of interpretation and feedback to the team of what the car's doing, while at the same time trying to raise 19 guys who want to stop you doing all that. So no wonder the drivers have to stay so fit. They are definitely at Singapore trying to make the weekend this extravaganza of entertainment. They have uh, Kings of Leon, Robbie Williams, Post Malone. So they are doing, they're picking up sort of the Eastern version of what we're going to be doing here in Las Vegas, which is bringing the biggest show on earth to, to Formula One. And they are definitely going to be doing that. The race will be something different. Uh, Max has been foretelling that it could be a tough one for them for somewhat undisclosed reasons. I think He's not really saying that his car will be any worse, but I think he's implying that the others may have caught up and be better with the dynamics of that particular track. I mean, his RB19 is a rocket ship, and we've seen it. It doesn't really matter what you throw at him. The guy's going to make his way to the front uh, eventually. But I think it'll be a little tougher for him this weekend. Aston, Mercedes, and McLaren are really on a rampage as well. Individually, that's six cars who have some of the top drivers in the world, obviously, who are able to, on any given weekend, be vying for that top spot. So I think we're going to definitely see a, a stronger challenge from them. And as we saw in Italy, if someone else can grab pole from Max Verstappen, then it opens up a much more interesting race. So I think we hope on behalf of all the other drivers and behalf of us as, as Formula One fans that someone else pips into pole. As much as that, of course, the manufacturer's championship battle is heating up. And Mercedes, uh, you know, they're currently second in the standings, but Ferrari did close that gap a little bit in Italy. It's just 56 points that now cover Mercedes, Ferrari, and Aston Martin. And Ferrari, I mean, they got 27 points alone last weekend. I mentioned drivers, silly season. Well, you know, we... Two drivers that probably have the most exposure right now is uh, Zhu Ganju. I always say you get his name wrong. At Alfa Romeo and Logan Sargent at Williams are probably 
two right in the hot seat. Their futures are as yet unresolved as we head into September, and that's never great for a driver. It means that the scrutiny, the absolute focus on every element of their performance, not outside the car because they do an amazing job, inside the car, this is a chance that they have to regain favor with their team, although Logan ran very well, obviously, at moments in Italy. But if you want a good seat for next year with the amount of amazing drivers that are waiting in the wings as reserves with track time and simulator time for these teams, I think if you're ever going to pull the rabbit out of the hat, this is the weekend to do it, lads. Um, Alpha Turi, well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we know Yuki Tsunoda, our guest a couple of weeks ago, he's really, he's really shown so well. I mean, he is a star in the making. He deserves his seat there. Daniel Ricciardo was bought in as well with AlphaTauri. Then he hurts his hand, which does the worst thing that you can hope, especially if you're on a comeback tour. You crack the door open for someone else with extreme talent and a youthful exuberance and almost a a uh, disregard for the establishment, and that is with Liam Lawson. And he, well, he's living up to his promise. Three into two doesn't go, so there will be some sparks flying there. Well, thank you for watching. If you enjoy the show, please do what you do. You know how it works. If you can share it, like it, follow us, and uh, tell all your friends, it really does help. A huge thanks to the win here in Las Vegas for hosting us in this beautiful Blue Wire studio. And of course, to Mobile One for the love of driving, for being such a strong supporter. Guys, I can't wait for this weekend. I can't wait to talk to you about the Singapore Grand Prix next weekend. Get ready for a lot of TV time over the next few days. And I will see you in a next week.